On today's episode of Future Says, we have Jan Tchaikovsky, Vice President of Analytics and Fleet Operations at Kongsberg. Jan is driven by the ambition of a sustainable maritime future, and he spent his career introducing state-of-the-art green and hybrid technology. He's currently focused on optimizing vessel performance, providing predictive maintenance services through machine condition monitoring. Hello, and welcome to Future Says, Jan. Thanks very much for joining the show. Thank you very much for having me. So Jan, can you talk to us about how somebody like yourself with a marine engineering background has transitioned to becoming the vice president of analytics and fleet operations at Kongsberg? Yeah, sure. So um, I started off, so I, as you mentioned, I have an engineering background. I, I um, did a master's of engineering in Newcastle University. I started off working with products, engineering of specific products for a company for a while before transitioning into working with ship design and ship systems. And yeah, as part of that uh, work, I was working quite closely with customers who were having some some issues with with their vessels, with their systems. They they wanted to understand what was what was happening. And I started at that point using data to try and understand the sequence of events of how something was was occurring. And started becoming interesting to try and figure out okay what what more could we do with all this data that we collect from vessels and from machines on on vessels and that's where we um where i was given an opportunity to lead a team of data analysts and data experts that were actually set up for that specific purpose so it's a natural transition for me going from being interested in data as part of the course of my engineering work to leading a team who were you know, looking more into that and trying to figure out what value we could provide with that data. Yeah, and you, you sort of said it was a natural career progression for you then. Do you think in the wider engineering field, this is happening more and more? People with that engineering background are transitioning to using data because it's just core to their role now. Yeah, I, I think um, a lot of the people who are now what we'd call data scientists in our organization are, uh, are former engineers. And we even look for when we're recruiting new people into our team, we look for people with engineering backgrounds, with the knowledge of marine machinery systems who have an interest in data, where rather than looking for data scientists who maybe are interested in marine systems, we look for the opposite because we see that it's actually much more valuable to understand what the data is telling you as that sort of domain expert and then being able to understand how to analyze it and yeah transform it and yeah it's a natural progression for for a lot of people i think and yeah so most of the people in my organization are former engineers excellent and so for these people that obviously understand the domain really well and understand what the data is potentially saying how do you actually upskill them then on some of the more data science methodologies is there a training process in place or anything like that so we encourage them to look into their own learning resources that, that they find online, but we don't have specific training courses for, for that within the company, but we do encourage them to look outside of the organization and look for online resources because there's a wealth of online resources, online communities that can help people transition into, into that sort of a role. It's something we hear a lot about on the show is getting the domain experts, like you say, working with some data experts and trying to build a collaboration 
teamwork approach mentality, a sort of culture around that. Is that something you actively work on as well at Kongsberg, trying to build that data-driven mentality and culture? Culture is extremely important. And um, one challenge we have is that we see there are a lot of there's a lot of data science competence sitting all around the, the business, um, very distributed. And the challenge is to try and identify where that competence exists and try to, in a way, set up a community of practice so that people can identify who else is working on similar issues and yeah, collaborate together. And even in my organization, we we see that um, people have a tendency, It's especially with those I don't know if it's particular to data science, but especially those sorts of individuals, they like to work as individuals and like to work on their own thing without really um, talking so much to their colleagues. So we try to encourage them to work together, to work as a team rather than uh, just a group of individuals and yeah, try and uh, give them the tools and the, the methods to aid them in doing that. Yeah, yeah I completely agree. And I know how important that is. Um, so I know we jump straight into the to the deep end there around the team and, and what's the makeup of that. Take a step back then again. You know, you've been at Kongsberg, let's say, three to four years. But prior to that, you were over a decade at Rolls-Royce and there was a natural um, progression there. So what have you right in saying it's maybe five or six years in terms of a leading data teams, Jan? Yeah, yeah, yeah I'd, I'd say that. Yeah. Okay. And so could you tell us about how things were then? Five or six years ago, let's say, within data science and engineering in, in Kongsberg slash Rolls-Royce, how it is today? What have been some of those big jumps that you've made already? Five or six years ago, when it comes to data science, is eons. And in our industry back then, it was very, very uh, immature. But we were one of the front runners in terms of seeing the value of trying to do this. We didn't quite understand how at the time. And, you know, one, one of the first things we did was say, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to just collect a ton of data and we're going to collect it from lots of different ships and then we'll figure out afterwards what we're going to do with it. So the first thing we did wrong in a way, even, even though, you know, it was a learning process and, you know, it was a valuable thing to do. The thing that we realized afterwards was that actually you need to figure out what you want to do with the data before you start collecting it. And then once you once you figure out, okay, what value are you trying to provide with the data, then you figure out what data you need to provide that value. Yeah, so always starting with that sort of business value. So yeah, is that exactly. that's one of the big learnings then? Yeah. Are there anything else that, that's changed in terms of yeah, data access or Yeah, absolutely. I mean connectivity, as an example, is actually become easier, even though it's still not easy. It's easier to get hold of the data from vessels. There are a lot more off-the-shelf products available to collect data. A lot better tools and infrastructures available to collect the data and to structure the data and to bring the data to a place where you can actually start doing something with it. So the technology has also been sort of moving steadily along with us. And we're now at the stage where we can do a lot more because the technology is mature enough for us to do so. And so you spoke about yeah some of that transition over the last five years, some of those challenges. Do you think over the next five years, Jan, those challenges have been eradicated? Are there any new challenges that you expect to try reach some of your strategic objectives? Some of the challenges we face today, that they're going to be there regardless. They may improve, but certainly over the next five years, things like connectivity. Vessels are always going to be at sea. They're always going to be difficult to get hold of. 
they're always going to lose connectivity from time to time. And also the one big difference between what we do and what, for example, the car industry does is that every single vessel is different. So there's no one size fits all solution for collecting data from machinery, for example. You need to take a one by one approach, which makes it difficult to, to, to scale. But these sorts of challenges, we're going to find new solutions for. Uh, so it makes it easy for us to deal with those challenges. Yeah, and on, on the project sphere then, over the last five years, can you talk about some of the success stories you've built up in the business, some of the quick wins, or maybe some of the longer term projects that you're seeing really positive results on from that analytics and fleet operations perspective? Yeah, I mean, um, some of the best projects or some of the projects with the best sort of return on investment have been projects that have just come from us working closely with customers, understanding their, their needs and yeah, working alongside them to make improvements. So one example could be where we um, were helping a customer understand how they an upgrade they were thinking of doing to one of their vessel propulsion systems was going to improve their fuel consumption for the vessel and their emissions. So we analyzed the data from one of their vessels for the past couple of years and, and looked at what that was consuming throughout that period. And then we looked at ways to how the hybrid or how the propulsion system in, uh, upgrade could actually improve based on their baseline. And we could then show them, in this case, we were, we were talking about uh, $120,000 of fuel savings in a year just from our improvement, almost 300 tons of, of CO2. But what we could then do, and this was the really valuable part, is that once the customer had decided, based on our recommendations, decided to do the upgrade, we could actually look and see, okay, how have they actually performed after the upgrade? Have they achieved the same results as we predicted? And we could see that, yes, they have improved. They have saved some fuel and they have saved some, they emit less, but not to the level that we expected. And in that case, it was a simple answer to, as to why, because the crew were operating the vessel as they had done before. They weren't using it the way they should in order to make those improvements. So that was a very, by analyzing the data after the upgrade, we could actually see, see that and tell them, with a bit of training, you can get up to the predicted savings. And they did. But then after that, it was... The customer asked us, okay, this is fantastic. And we, we were, by that time, very close with the customer. And they asked us, okay, what more can we do? And then we said, okay, well, you can do an additional upgrade. But with this one upgrade, you can reach savings of almost $500,000 a year and 1,000 tons of CO2. But it was through that dialogue, through that collaboration, that we could actually bring about these savings and yeah, make the customer happy through our, the service we provide. Yeah, brilliant. And lots of questions off the back of that, Jan. Maybe the first one is, <clears throat> I love how you've you've built that ROI and I presume that was sort of a target throughout. You've set that in advance. Do you have sort of a checklist for every project that in order to make it successful and what tends to be the success criteria that you look to put in place before you set into something that you know will take weeks and months of investment? What we found is that with 
a lot of the time we we just want to start small so we want we want to just okay if we're going to come into a dialogue with the customer we just get hold of some data and and show them okay what we see for example we could just take some data that's freely available online for looking at vessel position vessel speed things like that and and give the customer okay this is your operating profile for the past year or two and some of them don't realize how the vessels are operating and we could even from that just see okay well you're operating at a speed which is much lower or maybe much higher than your design speed for your vessel and you know why are you doing that is there a way you can change to the design speed and maybe see the improvements already just from there then we can look at okay how many engines are you you know coming on using online when you're operating just simple operational tweaks and just start small and then what we always find is that over time, or once we've presented the data to the customer, they'll they'll say, okay, this is really interesting. How about this? What about this? How can we do this? And they, they start coming up with ideas. And then we can, they can say, okay, well, what we need is we need this data set, and we need to do this, and we need to do this. And then we can work together. And then it sort of just transitions into a, a bigger case study, a bigger project. Yeah. And so for those that, that aren't completely familiar with Kongsberg, then could you just quickly explain who those customers are in your case? Yeah. So the customers we work with primarily are vessel operators and vessel owners. So it could be a customer or a vessel owner that or operator that operates a, a ferry or a platform supply vessel, an offshore supply vessel. It could be a cruise ship, it could be a fishing vessel, it could be a tug, everything and anything in between. Okay. And have you changed some of your business models with these customers based on this now explosion of data and work of your analytics team? Yeah, in, in some cases, we do look at ways we can actually partner with customers. So we could um, take more ownership of the operation of the machinery we, we deliver to a vessel. You know, Kongsberg delivers big machines, uh, winches, thrusters, propellers, things like that. and we understand very well how the machinery operates and we can take more ownership of the operation and we could say to the customer, okay, well, over the next five years for a certain price, we're going to take care of all service, all maintenance, everything. And you just have to pay a, a fixed yearly fee. So. And it could be a pay by the hour sort of business model where we would say, okay, every hour your equipment is online or running uh, you pay us a certain certain amount and we'll keep the machine operating and so so it's a different approach than the traditional business model which is okay we respond we react to customers saying okay this propeller or, or this thruster has broken down we need to order spare parts we need to order service a very reactive way of doing things whereas now we want to be proactive we want to get in front and we want to help the customer understand when something is going to start failing and then plan for that and avoid that failure do the maintenance in advance do it when it's most convenient and not in the middle of a critical operation and just help the customer keep operating as much as possible and is this what we'd call predictive maintenance then moving into that sort of from condition based let's say to predictive okay yeah yeah, yeah. so we offer uh, varying levels of condition monitoring services condition monitoring to uh, condition-based maintenance for certain equipment, all the way up to predictive maintenance. And that's where we start applying digital twins of our products and using those digital twins to, to understand the remaining useful life of components within that product. 
You've touched on my favorite subject, yeah. <laughs> the digital twin. I thought I had. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen my rye smile. Yeah, yeah. Now, this, this comes up a lot on, on the show, and, and yeah, I'm very passionate about this potential for simulation and data and, and merging them in sort of hybrid models towards the digital twin. And you've spoke about the potential already. So in Kongsberg case, what does a digital twin mean and how do you apply it then? You've mentioned it briefly, but how could you expand on that a little bit? So we look at... Um a digital twin in different ways. I mean, um, a digital twin, it can be a buzzword, but for us, it, it can be one of three things. It can be a, a 4D, what we call a 4D model of machine, say, and that's, you know, a 3D representation that can also move and, and operate. Then we uh, have what's called behavioral models. Uh, and that's, you know, how the product or the machine behaves under certain circumstances, what external stimuli will do to it and things like that. And then we have what I'm focused on, which is the diagnostic models. And these are where we can look at or use digital twins to understand what how the components within the model are starting to degrade, uh, given certain in inputs or certain actions, and use that to understand how much time that component has left of its life. And that's uh, that's a growing field. It's something we've um, we have some experience on, and we're we're going to start rolling out digital twins for more and more of our products in our product portfolio. And I guess is that sort of a, a focus then? I know we spoke about five years ago, we spoke a little bit about today. In five years, is that sort of the end goal to have a digital twin remaining useful life of all assets in production to the contracts that desire that? In five years time, we're going to be seeing not just product digital twins, but, but vessel digital twins. So the customers are going to start asking for us to provide our products digital twins that can be integrated into a vessel digital, digital twin, or even in some cases when we are the designer, we would supply the, the vessel digital digital twin. And then there's a, that breeds a whole new load of opportunities. Yeah, exciting. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it's, very, it's very, really exciting. There's a, there's a lot to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. On the point you mentioned about some of the projects, you spoke about the savings in terms of money on, on maintenance and spare parts and in terms of emissions. And I love that. And I, I hope in the future, more and more people put that as a huge ROI. I know that's something you're very passionate about, building this sustainable maritime future. Can you speak a bit more about why that's important to you, Jan, this sustainable maritime future? I think every industry needs to focus on how sustainable they're operating and, and what more they can do. Because, you know, we only have one planet and, you know, each one of us as individuals has, has a responsibility to be more sustainable, to live more sustainably. And one of the things that I've actually been looking for during my career, looking for roles where I can maybe contribute in, in some way to a more sustainable future. One of my first roles was in um, designing and developing LNG-fueled propulsion systems as a much greener fuel and there are a lot of new fuels coming up now, which are becoming more and more interesting, at least in our industry. And it's really great to see that the industry and society as a whole is, is really starting to take sustainability seriously. And it's becoming front and center to everyone's strategy. So, yeah, it's um, a good time to be doing this. Yeah. When you work in that sort of space and when you're passionate about that, what, what are the things that you've seen? You mentioned some greener fuels. What are some of the things you've seen of recent that really gets you excited about 
how maybe we're hopefully we're improving in this aspect. You know, g- green fuels is is one, but we're also seeing, as an example, offshore wind is something I I was a little bit skeptical about um, for a long time. Not if you lived uh, in Ireland, Jan. <laughs> no, no, uh, but uh, it seemed like um, more of a political thing that was just uh, nice for the politicians to, to play around with. But it's been a real success, and I think now in the UK, it's um, wind is responsible for I think twenty five percent of domestic power production, which really I think is just so positive. Good, good. Things are going in the right direction in in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And as we sort of come towards the end here, I want to just use you as a great example again. You know, you're somebody who came from engineering. You're now head of analytics at Kongsberg. You're doing amazing projects. And there's, I speak to tons of engineers that are making that transition now, either from themselves or being tasked with that transition based on, you know, generally engineers are technical minded. They're domain experts. Maybe they don't have that data science knowledge. But as you said, sometimes that's less important. And there are tools out there now to help them along that way. So for people out there that are making this transition, do you have any sort of advice to them, maybe two pieces or three pieces of advice to smoothen that transition, ensure they're focusing on the right things? In general, it's always worth just doing a little bit more than just what your job description is, just on a general basis to maybe explore. Maybe if you're an engineer and a little bit interested in data, go out and try and do something, try and reach out for opportunities where you could explore that interest. I think try and stay curious, learn as much as you can. Yeah, take the opportunities that that come along and seek out the opportunities that don't. But also, and this really applies to my transition into the field of data science, is that I was given this advice. This this doesn't come from me, but this I think it's, it's worth repeating. Get comfortable being uncomfortable because going from being an expert in your field of engineering to leading a group of data scientists where you are by no means an expert it's fairly uncomfortable and not just that in in other ways maybe you're uncomfortable public speaking or you have some something you think is a weakness turn it into an opportunity for growth and don't be discouraged if it turns out to be a pretty hard uh, period of growth because it is i mean it does take time and it does take effort but it's absolutely worth it and it, it does get easier uh, with time yeah and do you have any resources that helped you in that process that could help others whether it be books or presentations or podcasts or anything like that going into data science from not knowing very much these uh books for dummies <laughs> are actually quite <laughs> useful but I, actually if there's any book that uh, helps you maybe learn python or learn r or anything like that it's worth picking up and just working through just to develop an understanding of, of how things work in that space you know, as a leader, I I don't really work so much directly with, with data anymore, but it's always useful to understand how things work. As you say, sort of be curious and seek out those yeah. opportunities. Excellent. Exactly. Yeah, as a final question, we spoke about a lot of great things today. What makes you most excited about the next five years as the head of analytics at Kongsberg? I think it's just an exciting period when right now in, in the marine industry. There's a lot of new technologies being introduced, sustainability is uh, front and center, as I, as I mentioned. And there's a lot of demand from customers for new business models, new ways of working, new um, services. So there's so many interesting challenges out there that the next five years is going to fly by. 
Excellent. Very exciting. I look forward to it, Jan. Thanks very much for joining the show, and I'm sure we'll speak soon. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks for watching. Now, next up on alter.com forward slash future says will be Ravi Parmeswar, Vice President of Business Intelligence at Johnson & Johnson. Hope to see you there.